Well, this afternoon we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews. And we're also at the same time going to be wrapping up not only the particular section that we are in, but the entire first part of the book of Hebrews, which is oftentimes called the doctrinal section of the book. The is, or we might, the is section of the book. And then we begin moving on to the ought section of the book. Uh, to give another perspective on it. We'll be in the last part of Hebrews chapter 10 today. But before we uh, get into that, let us hear from the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us give attention to God's uh, holy word to hear his voice. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let us pray. Our Father, our great God in heaven, you have spoken to, spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past. But now, in the last days, you have spoken in your Son, your incarnate Word. We pray, O oh Father, that you would, you, would, you would open the mouth of this, your servant, to proclaim that Word by the work of your Spirit that he might be chained to the word of truth, that he might freely declare that truth with clarity and accuracy and understanding. And we pray, O Father, that by your Spirit you will open the hearts of the hearers of the word here assembled, 
that we might receive your holy gospel and that we might write it that you might write it on our hearts that you might write your laws upon our hearts even as you have promised as we have read so we ask these things O father in the name of your son our lord jesus christ our savior amen As we mentioned, we are now coming to the end of the first part of the entire book of Hebrews, what we referred to as a moment ago as the doctrinal section of the book. That is, largely what has been happening is that the writer of the book of Hebrews has been laying down the superiority of Christ as a matter of this is what is. There have been some exhortations built in there, but largely it has been all about who Christ is in relationship to everything that's come before and how he is superior. It has all been largely teaching about Christ and asserting his superiority. What I like to call the is of the book. We'll be seeing in coming weeks as we get into chapter 10, verse 19 and following, what we would call the oughts of the book. Because all of this is true, therefore we ought. And so we're going to be getting into those things. Again, as remember, we've been looking at Jesus who is the greater than. Most recently, we've been spending time in the fact that he's been, he is the greater sacrifice. And as we look at these closing verses, it is closing out this particular section on the sacrifice but also it could be argued it's also a capstone for the whole, the whole first part of the book. Remember, we saw that Jesus is the final and ultimate prophet of God, whereas he'd revealed himself prior times to the fathers in various ways, in various times, in various places. He's now revealed himself definitively in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest revelation that God has given and the final revelation of God. And we've seen that he's greater than angels. That angels could not do what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. And that he's greater than Moses. A better savior with a better deliverance. Thus a better exodus. And thus a better covenant. A new covenant that is a superior covenant. We saw then that he was greater is greater than the priesthood. That the priests themselves are beset with weakness, and he is not beset with the weakness of sin. He, he is, deals with the weakness of being a man and thus can sympathize with us, but no sacrifice did he have to offer for his own sinfulness because he had no sinfulness and he was heard on account of his own reverence. And so he's a superior priest, but he's also a superior priest because he's a priest of an entirely different order, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, whom Abraham, being the father of the nation of Israel and the, um, all those who would follow, tithe to Melchizedek, and thus all of those in the Old Covenant tithe on uh, where it t- made that tithe through him. 
So we also have a better priest for a better covenant, which we saw at the end of chapter 8, which is actually some of that is referenced in today's text. And then we've been seeing he is a greater sacrifice. Jesus did not simply bring a sacrifice as a priest in the great as a priest uh, in the in a greater order, the order of Melchizedek, but and nor did he simply offer something as a sacrifice. He did bring a sacrifice that is better and more complete, but he is that sacrifice. He offered himself as that sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb, a sacrifice that did not have to be repeated, only had to be offered once, never again to be offered. Thus, Christians, when we, we are not people who offer sacrifices in order to bring redemption from sin, for Christ did that. Any sacrifices we give are matters of thanksgiving for what he has done. The sacrifice that he offered of himself that none of the previous sacrifices could do. Say if we were to combine all the different sacrifices of all the different festival seasons that were offered, that would pale in comparison to what Christ offered upon the cross. And so we, not, so we have a better priest for a better covenant. A better sacrifice for a better covenant. And our text today in chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, uh, actually returns in summary form to a passage we looked at some time ago when we were looking at Jesus being the greater priest in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, in which he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through uh, 34. And just as a review, uh, let us go ahead and hear that. It says, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And he finishes that by saying, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanquish away. Our text today summarizes the perp- summarizes that for the purpose of a closing statement regarding the sufficiency and superiority of Christ's sacrifice that he made on our behalf as well as a capstone, that is a kind of a closing argument of how Jesus is better than all that came before or anything that could come after. 
In that text we just read, we saw that uh, there's this covenant in Christ is a new covenant that is a better covenant, a covenant in which he puts away sin, in which his laws will be written in the minds and hearts of his people that ultimately finds its fulfillment not in this age, but finds its fulfillment and its full manifestation at the return of Jesus Christ when his people are glorified. in which they shall be, that is, we shall be what we are. What we are is righteous before God, and we shall be fully in our beings, our minds, and hearts righteous before Him. And yet, He also does the work of sanctifying His people and growing them in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we'll look at that a little bit more from our text today. But we'll be looking at several things in Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 18. We'll be seeing, first of all, the cl- uh, for, for the claim that's being made, we're going to see the authority of that claim. And then we're going to be seeing the claim broken up into three parts. We'll see that the first claim is that the new covenant is one of a, is, involves a new heart and a new principle. And the second claim is that <clears throat> the entire basis of that, of the pre, of all the other claims, though, is that God remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more. That he has made perfect those who are being sanctified, as was said at the end of the previous uh, passage. And then we will see, because sin is forgiven, there cannot be any longer a sacrifice or offering for sin. So first of all, we look in verse 15 of chapter 10, and we see the authority of that claim. Who is it that the writer of the book says bore witness of that promise of the new covenant? Of that thing that he quoted earlier in Jeremiah chapter 8 and that he's summarizing now here in chapter 10. What is the authority of that statement? And he says this, after the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that in the scriptures. The authority behind these claims that are being made is the Holy Spirit himself who inspired Jeremiah chapter 31. The Holy Spirit who's inspired the covenants. The Holy Spirit who inspired all of the previous writings testifying of Jesus Christ. Who is this Holy Spirit but the one who descended upon Jesus at his baptism? Who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is God, the third person of the Trinity. So what authority does the author, by what authority does the author say these claims can be made? None but the Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of Jeremiah and the promise of a new covenant that that would remove any and all sin. Jesus himself testified these things point to him. This Jesus who is God. John Gill speaks of this authority and that he is a distinct divine person, the author of the covenant of grace. And in what he says in that covenant, he bears testimony to the truths before delivered concerning the insufficiency and abolition of legal sacrifices and a full and perfect remission of sin 
by the blood and sacrifice of Christ. So when he says, and the Holy Spirit bears witness of these things, what essentially is the author of Hebrews stating? And really, what is the Holy Spirit stating who inspired the writing of the book of Hebrews? Is that if we take issue with Christ being this greater than, our issue is not simply with the human author of the book of Hebrews. Our issue is with the Holy Spirit, who is God, the third person of the Trinity. Our issue is that we don't disagree, is not that we disagree with the author of Hebrews. It's that we disagree with God if we reject this idea. And that we are taking things into our own hands. We see here a basic principle laid out is that there is only one inerrant and infallible interpreter of Scripture. And it is not the one who is saying this right now. The only infallible and inerrant interpreter of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. That's not by means of the Holy Spirit somehow giving me a better idea of what the text says or the Holy Spirit giving me a voice and saying this is what it really means. Rather, it's by means of the Scriptures themselves. The Bible defines how we should read the Bible. The Bible shows us how it should be read through uses of Old Testament like this. It shows us how it should be read. It should not be read simply like any other book, as sometimes is taught. There's an element of reading skills and reading practices that are true, but it's not just any other book, for it is divinely inspired. And so thus we must bear witness that the Holy Spirit bore witness to all of these things, and we must accept their authority. So on that basis, he then makes the first claim. And again, he's following. <clears throat> he is uh, following up this idea in verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, in verse 14. By that single offering he has made perfect for all time, and that offering that he made was one that we saw last week, was once for all time that it transcends the moment we're in. It transcended the moment Jesus was in when he died upon that cross. And it reached back into time and atoned for the sins of all those who, like Abraham, believed God. And it stretches forward into the future and brings atonement for sin to all those who believe God, who, believe, who, who trust upon him who believe the gospel, who believe the report of Christ, who have turned to him. And so it covers our past sins, and yet it also covers our present sins. And because it was once for all time, it also covers those sins with which we have not yet committed. Thus, we have confidence to go to him and say, forgive our sins. And so the main idea, that, again, that he's getting at is this idea of this one single offering that has been made and the superiority of it. And the first claim that he makes with regards to this new covenant has to do with 
what he's doing in terms of making his new covenant people new in terms of his sanctifying work in them. So the first claim we have is we have a new type of covenant with a new type of principle for obedience. Again, we've looked back at Hebrews 8 and we saw that this promise of a new covenant fulfilled in Christ what we saw was an inspired and infallible commentary on Jeremiah 31. And what does he promise here? What is promised in that, in that promise of Jeremiah 31? He promises a new heart and a new life and a new principle. Now that new promise and that new heart and that new life and that new principle is founded upon what comes afterwards in this text. That's part of the promise. This one is something that, as was mentioned earlier, does not find a complete manifestation in this age and in this life, but one in which we have a taste of that which is to come. Consider this a taste of what was to come. Say we are at home and deciding we want to make some chocolate chip cookies. And we take all the various different ingredients and mix them all together. And we stir them all up and, and we have right there the chocolate chip cookie. And we decide to taste it. Now, we say, oh, that tastes good. But then it's nothing compared to what it comes out after the oven. Now, there's some who would disagree with regards to that. My opinion, the chocolate chip cookie is better after it's come out of the oven. It's an imperfect illustration but it tastes, it, it's a taste of that which will be coming. The law of God has been written on upon our hearts, but it will, and it will be written on our hearts in such a way that there will be no question and nothing pulling in any other direction. There will be no need for us to say to one another, know God, for we shall know God. Again, the previous section, as I've stated, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is the being sanctified portion that he's talking about. This is how sanctification works. It is God putting something in us. Earlier he stated that, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. He speaks of having been sanctified as something that's already been completed, that is set apart unto himself. And now he says, said in verse 14, those who are being sanctified, meaning that the practical outworking of that, the practical outworking of that. We've been sanctified, that is set apart to God. We are now being sanctified by the work of God. That is him writing upon us his law of love. Love for him and love for neighbor rooted in the fact that he first loved us. The act of sanct- God, the, act of, the outworking of sanctification, that is the act of us becoming more holy, more like Christ, growing in his grace and knowledge, is not itself sanctification. It's the result of God's sanctifying work in us. As Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, 
therefore be all be all the more eager to <clears throat> work out therefore let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling we ought, a lot of people stop right there and don't go to the next verse i had some friends of mine who wanted to argue with me that that shows we could lose our salvation and they quoted that and i said keep going and he says for it is god who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure God is the one at work. But we see here the new covenant does not give us a new law. There's those who have argued that in the new covenant what Jesus did is he, uh, he did away with the old, old requirements of the law to simply give us a new, easier-to-keep law. That's just a law that says we need to love. A whole lot easier than than uh, the details of the Ten Commandments. And so thus it's easier for us to do what God requires for us to enter into heaven. And I'm uh, thinking, and when I heard that, it was coming from a Protestant uh, who was actually someone who's a much beloved Puritan writer who argued that, Richard Baxter. And when I read that, I thought, you know, maybe you might want to just go back to Rome. But it does not give us a new law. Rather, God's life is given to us such that we become, in the words of Peter in 2 Peter, partakers of the divine nature. Much talk is given about motivations for obedience. That is, if we have been redeemed and we have been made righteous in him, and we have all that we need for life and godliness, and we have all that we need to enter into his presence, if Christ has made us, if Christ has qualified us such that we have nothing more to do to enter into God's presence, why should we obey? Much debate has been argued about that. As some would say, well, it's so we can get more rewards. But then we see, and there it does appear to be some element of rewards. But then it says in the book of Revelation, they all get thrown back at him, so. Things we don't get to keep. And there's those who go to a, what I would say even a darker place and say that it's, it's in order for us to get a second and final justification. That we go before God at the throne of judgment. And while he's justified us, it's just enough for us to be right with him so he can work in us, so we can do the good works necessary in order to get favor with him to enter into heaven. And that's wrong completely wrong and it's a complete misreading of romans chapter 2 verses uh, 6 uh, through 16 there's a recent publication which i read an article where that misreading was given it took that steps to take that part of romans entirely out of context but here we see what happens it's the, the motivation for obedience and doing what's right is simply this. It's not because we need to have a carrot on a stick put before us. If we, if we are constantly in need of someone to put a carrot and a stick before us in order to move forward in the Christian life, we are at best very immature as Christians. No, it's because he places a new principle in our hearts by which we have been made anew and are no longer according to the flesh. 
Here, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. You can turn there in the ESV. You're going to hear some differences because this is my translation. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit mind mind the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the translators of this particular translation in Romans 8 decided to take perfectly good nouns and turn them into verbs. And it, says, it says, for the mind of the flesh, but it translates for, the, for those who set their mind on the flesh. It just simply says the mind of the flesh. The mind of the spirit. But it's not the only translation to do so, and I understand why they do that. And plus, these people are also probably more smarter than me, too, but I disagree. But you see, Christ fulfilled in us by his own act the righteous requirement of the law, thus perfecting us for all time. And in so doing, he's given us a new nature and a new heart. A believer, by definition, cannot be according to the flesh. A believer, by nature, cannot be, as defined in Romans 8, as we just read here, in the flesh. It's impossible. Because a believer, it says, it says, but you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It is impossible for the Spirit... For the Christian, and by in that's in accord the way it's worded in Romans eight to ever be according to the flesh. So, because a new life has been given, that new life which <clears throat> that new life has been given, the Christian lives a new life and has a new principle. At the same time, that new life, which was is also at war with the patterns and practices of the old life, which was spoken of in Romans chapter 7. But there will be a day when those patterns and practices will finally be gone. So we have a new nature which cries out, Command what you will and give me what you command. To quote Augustine. That is, command what you will and then what you commanded me, give to me so I can do it. It's one that delights in obeying God's law because God's law has been inscribed on our hearts with a new nature. But yet as mentioned, while there's delight in obeying God's law, those old patterns and practices are there. And we often say, I'm doing what I don't want to do and I do do what I don't want to do. 
And yet we are being sanctified, meaning we still have to fight the old patterns and practices. But the motivation is this. God loves us, so we love him. And that's it. That's from 1 John. Because God has done good to us, so we should honor him. Not because we're trying to give him something back or repay him, but simply because he's loved us. And so we love him. To quote Ezekiel in chapter 36 and in 37, respectively, our hearts of stone have been turned to hearts of flesh. And to quote that children's song, them dry bones have been reawakened and given flesh. Spurgeon says of this passage in Hebrews, the law says you shall, you shall or you shall not shall be punished. But the gospel says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have forgiven all your trespasses. Now my love shall sweetly constrain you and the influence of inward principles shall guide you in my ways. My law shall be written not upon stone, but upon fleshly tablets of your hearts. Now, the point of this section, though, while this is used, this is illustrating what's going on in the Christian life. The point is bound up in the next next two claims. For while this is the act of being sanctified, apart from the promises and provision of Christ's sacrifice, no amount of the process of sanctification can undo and remove the penalties and the putridness of our sin. For even in sanctification, our righteous acts are still tainted with sin and are still, in terms of their merit, but filthy rags. Because we are still not yet made perfect. And even in our our righteous acts, we are still sinners. And our righteous acts are never pure enough to please God in and of themselves. People who wish to add to Christ's work by saying that there's that we still need to do work in order to qualify us for heaven as a motivation for doing works. Some will argue I'm just trying to uphold the holiness of God and his righteousness because he requires things. And I say yes and amen. He does require things and he is absolutely holy. But to say that he will accept anything less than absolute perfection as a qualification for being his presence is not to uphold his holiness, it is to impugn his holiness. The Christian life is not one that is lived on the basis of a bunch of moral essays. Christianity is not fundamentally an ethic, though Christianity has an ethic. If that's what it is, if that's all Christianity is, is a bunch of ethics, we might as well just throw in the towel and join with the moralists of the 19th and early 20th century who, while denying the central claims of Christ, said we need Christianity so we can have moral exposition, so we can ensure that we have order. That, my friends, is something but it's not 
Christian. No, without what we have coming up in the next verse, in the next claim, it's all nothing in, in his vein. Now, the foundation of this previous claim, the very fact that God is at work in us, the very fact that we have this assurance that we've been made perfect, is rooted in, not in, is not rooted in the working out of him writing his laws in our hearts and writing them on our minds, but rather it's rooted in what we have in verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You hear that word, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Following on the fact that it says he has made perfect those who are being sanctified. That's the argument for that. And the argument is this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. After the Holy Spirit says. So here we see how he has been made, how those who have been sanctified have been made perfect. That's the very root of it all. The very, the very thing that gives any meaning to this. It is this. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. One uh, preacher whose sermon I read on this passage, the title of his sermon was, called the non-remembrance of sin. God does not remember the sin. We've learned over and over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews here that angels, Moses, the priest, nor the priestly sacrifice can put away sin. The old covenant could not. If the old covenant could not, which was, which was given by God, nothing else that we can offer can do so. For without the removal of sin by, the, by this one who is the greater than with the sacrifices we think ourselves to offer. That is, if we do not have the removal of sin by the one who is the greater than, any sacrifices that we think ourselves able to offer, Spurgeon says, we should therefore feel uncertain as to whether any pardon was received. Moreover, we should never feel safe. For even though yesterday we offered that sin offering and did feel secure, yet we have sinned since yesterday. And in what state are we now? Any sacrifices that we could offer for our sin, that's what the result is. There's only that one sacrifice by which we've been made perfect. We have in Christ not just that which is a metaphor for the removal of sin, such as the the goats and the bulls and the burnt offerings. But rather, we have a real sacrifice that really removes sin. By means of what? Through forgiveness and him not remembering our sin. Remember, we read from Romans chapter 8 earlier. What did we read? From, from what is it that we have been freed? He says, for you have been freed from what? The law of sin and death. Romans 8.1. What is the law of sin and death? It's simply this. 
the covenant of works. It says this, you sin, you die. You sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. But we've been freed from that. Though we have sinned, and though we even still sin, we no longer suffer eternal death and destruction because God remembers our sin no more. That is, He no longer holds it against us. Man, we've been reading a going through a book on uh, the third Saturday of every month called Name Above All Names. And one of the things that we learned in the first chapter is that the devil's been lying to us since the beginning. He's been crouching around the corner, speaking lies to us, just as, just as he did to Adam and Eve. For what is it that he tempted, for with what is it that he tempted Eve? But... God really doesn't have your best interest in mind. That's essentially what he said. He's rather waiting for a gotcha moment. God was for Adam and Eve. He is for redemption and sending his son for his elect. For he holds our sin against us no more. We have the truth bound up in this wonderful thing, in these wonderful songs. For by you my prayers acceptance gain, though although with sin defiled, Satan accuses me in vain, since I am God's own child. And another song. And also, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look to heaven and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We look on him and pardon me. And, and to look on him and pardon me. My brothers and sisters, when we are in Christ, and when we look upon Christ by faith in union with him, we are looking upon the friendly heart of God. And if we are in Christ... God is not around the corner, crouching, just eager, doing his hand, saying, I'm waiting for you to fail so I can crush you. That's not what God is doing in Christ Jesus for his people. He is seeking our good, even in his discipline, in his training. It's not a matter of gotcha. It's a matter of him acting in his love for his people. We must realize this, if Christ died for me, if he died for you, then you and I must truly be pardoned. For it says we have been made perfect. By his, even in spite of our sanctification not being complete in this life, we have been made perfect. By, his doing the will of, by Jesus doing the will of God, obeying God on our behalf, and taking upon himself our sin. Is God one to forget his son's work on our behalf? No. He has the non-remembrance of sin because he remembers his son's work on our behalf. By non-remembrance is that he holds it against us no longer. No doubt many of us have heard this and know well this teaching and this doctrine. Having heard it if tens, if not hundreds of times. But upon it we must rest, 
For in resting on it, we are building upon a rock which will never be shaken. Spurgeon says of that idea, Even when the earth's old columns bow, and the stars fall like fig leaves from the tree, that rock will not be shaken. Who is it that says our sins are remembered no more? Who is it that declared that in the book of Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was the human vessel through that which is declared. It was the Holy Spirit who declared that. By what authority are they removed? By God's authority. There is no higher authority. There is no one higher up in the chain of command who can undo that. This is not a temporary removal either, for it says he is perfected forever. If our eyes are full of tears because of our sin, because of our awareness of our follies, if we cry out with Paul, O wretched man or woman that I am, if we're ladies, if for the ladies, Let those tears and those cries magnify for us the cross of Jesus so that it is far more grand and dear than we could ever imagine. Our sinfulness must must not and should never shake our confidence in Christ. If we are great sinners, we have a greater Savior. As badly as we think of our sin, we should think if it is if we should think if it is as badly We should think of our sin as badly as we can, for it is an affront to God. Let us also think think gloriously of Christ to a far greater degree than we can think badly of our sin. The closing words, in closing, we have the last claim in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. The conclusion is is the final claim. There is no more offering for sin. To turn from Christ is to turn not to something else. To turn from Christ, we're not in to try to turn to something else. We're truly not turning to something else. What we're turning to is nothing. Absolutely nothing. The big zero. Penance, nor the myth of purgatory, can remove our sinfulness. While none of us here likely consider much of those, we have our own versions of those. Another preacher in his sermon on this text made a list of of versions of those we could make. Say, I must make my heart softer for my sin to be removed. Oh, brother or sister, we cannot make our our hearts softer. Furthermore, that is not what causes our sin to be removed. Or, I am not sufficiently stricken with terror by by my sin for for my sin to have truly been removed. That I'm not sufficiently, my conscience is not is not terror stricken enough. We can see that in a man who truly knew Christ. And he wished to serve him. But if we read his journals, and so man, his journals are available in public domain. 
It's like someone riding a roller coaster. It's the journals of a man named David Brainerd. He used to be Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. But if we read his journals, one day he says, I am, not, I am not pained enough by my sin, and thus has my sin truly been removed. Or, say, I find myself not wishing to obey truly and from an absolutely pure heart. I have not done enough. Thus, my sins not removed. And then, of course, on other days, he would say, I know the blessed, I am knowing the blessed grace of God in Christ Jesus today. I truly believe I know him. And then the next day, he's back in the pit of despond. He ended up dying because he spent a whole night out in a blizzard praying, hoping that doing so, he could finally find ease for his conscience. And he got sick from that and ended up dying. But if we read his journals, I see this is a man who loves the Lord. Or we might say, I must pray more and be more in, and more intensely. And if so doing, I could have my sins removed. No, it's not. It's, I think we should pray more and we should pray more intensely. But if we do so in order to assuage our consciences, we're missing it. Or I don't feel it enough, so I don't have it. Thus, in order for me to feel it, to know it, I need to do X, Y, and Z so I can truly realize that my sins are removed. What is it we must do but look to Christ and hold on to the cross? For there is nothing else. Do we not see that when we seek to assuage our consciences by these acts, we are putting our finger in the pie and thinking we are doing something to add to what Christ has done? That is, he's made the pie and we're sticking our finger in and trying to help stir it. So we must keep close to the cross, for if we do not, we will find ourselves gravely unhappy. We can turn to nothing and no one better, for anything else is truly nothing. We can offer nothing and no one better when we are comforting a grieving brother or sister in attending to their sadness. God, praise God that he gives means to cope. But those are nothing compared to the beauty that is in Christ Jesus. Nor does this mean we are not to attend to the physical needs of our brothers and sisters who are in poverty and distress and want, for Scripture commands us to. Rather, it means we cannot just do that and think we are offering them the best we can offer. We can offer nothing and no one better to the ones who know not our Savior. Elders, pastors, preachers can offer no one and nothing better than Christ. To offer someone or something else is truly to offer nothing. A scholar of the 20th century, early 20th century, who came out of seminary, a thoroughgoing skeptic of the scriptures, rejecting the historic Christianity, rejecting uh, the resurrection of Christ and the miracles, stepped into the pulpit, and after a few months realized, I have nothing to offer these people. I'm giving them nothing. And he had a serious rethink and said, I must, be I must believe this. He struggled to believe it. He said, I'm going to preach it. 
because he realized he had nothing else to offer. So because Jesus has removed, uh, removed us from our sin and removed our sin from us and made us perfect forever, there is nothing and no one better. Anything or anybody else in light of that is absolutely nothing. So thus, when we move on to the next section, we can see that we have every reason, as we'll see, to hold on to Christ, every reason to live by faith, every reason to push forward one foot in front of the other, every reason to turn from our sin, the various different sections we'll be looking at. Every reason so to do, not in order to get something, but because of what we have. So, brothers and sisters, let us learn from what we've heard over the last several months looking at the doctrinal section of Hebrews and look to Christ as we move on to the next section of this book. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise and thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who by his work we have been made perfect forever. Now may you instill this truth within our hearts that we might serve you more in the newness of life and seek to do things that honor you by the work of your spirit because you have written your law upon our hearts. Lead us into your way. Lead us to yourself. We pray these things, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.